Welcome to the podcast. Today we will be discussing informed consent. Let's get legal. All right, today we will be starting a new section of the landmark cases, physician-patient relationship cases. Today we will be discussing the cases under the subsection informed consent. Our first case today is Canterbury v. Spence. Prior to the 1960s, many physicians did not inform patients of specifics about their medical care if they deemed it to be potentially upsetting to the patient. This even included not telling the patient at times that they were dying. During the 1960s, there was a shift away from this practice, and physicians started to inform patients more about their illness and treatment, although there was no requirement or widely accepted practice to tell patients everything. There was adopted what was known as the, quote, professional standard, unquote, which was that a physician would generally explain to the patient as much about their illness or proposed treatment as any other physician would in their position and would often gloss over risks. In 1958, Jerry Canterbury suffered a ruptured disc in his back. He went to Dr. William Spence in Washington, D.C., a well-known neurosurgeon in the D.C. area. He informed Mr. Canterbury that he, would, uh, that he most likely had a ruptured disc and would require surgery, but not, did not explain the risks. Dr. Spence told Canterbury's mother that the laminectomy was no more serious than any other operation. After his surgery, Mr. Canterbury fell from his hospital bed and as a result of the surgery and the fall, became paralyzed from the waist down and incontinent. Canterbury sued Dr. Spence for negligence and for not warning him of the risks of the surgery. Dr. Spence argued that the risk of paralysis was a very slight risk and that by communicating this risk, it might deter patients from getting needed surgery. The trial court agreed with Dr. Spence and dismissed the case. Canterbury appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals reversed the decision, shifting the standard from a professional standard to a, quote, reasonable person standard, unquote, in regard to what information to share with patients. This includes what a reasonable person would want to know when making decisions on medical care, including serious, albeit rare, risks. The case was remanded for further consideration. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. The D.C. Court of Appeals ruled that a physician has a duty to disclose to a patient any material risks associated with a proposed medical procedure before obtaining their consent. The information disclosed should be what a reasonable person in a similar situation would want to know in order to make an informed decision about their care. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember you can't bury, for Canterbury, specific for Spence, risks before operating on a patient. Again, you can't bury, for Canterbury, specific, for Spence, risks before operating on a patient. Our next case is Kamowitz v. Michigan DMH. Psychosurgery was a common practice in the early to mid-1900s with lobotomies and other experimental or largely theoretical-based practices. These surgeries were often done on patients involuntarily held in state hospitals. 
a patient would be presented with the opportunity to have surgery and signed a consent form and was operated on. This practice was called into question by Mr. Kamowitz, a civil rights activist and attorney. Mr. Kamowitz filed a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of a John Doe, among others, who had psychosurgery while being held involuntarily, arguing that these patients were being illegally detained for experimental surgery. The trial court ruled in favor of Mr. Kamowitz and John Doe and directed Mr. Doe's release. They also opined on the informed consent process in these state hospitals with involuntarily held patients. It held that experimental psychosurgery could have substantial risk with no known benefits and that for informed consent for such high-risk procedures, a patient must be competent, knowing, and voluntary for the procedure. Due to the nature of their involuntary confinement, the court ruled that none of these standards could possibly be met by these patients. They even cited the Nuremberg Code, which states that experimental subjects should be able to exercise free power of choice without force, deceit, duress, or coercion. The court ruled that experimental psychosurgery could not be done on involuntarily held patients due to the nature of their confinement and inability to consent without coercion. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. The court considered informed consent for medical procedures to require three elements, competence, knowledge, and voluntariness. It concluded that involuntarily committed patients due to their confinement and potential dependence on the institution could not truly fulfill these requirements. The court also recognized the inherent vulnerability of involuntary patients and the power imbalance between them and medical professionals. This vulnerability makes it impossible for them to make truly informed and voluntary decisions about experimental procedures with potentially irreversible consequences. Now, how to remember the ruling? This is a bit of a dark mnemonic. Uh, Kamowitz is a very Jewish surname. Uh, this reminds me of the Nuremberg Code and the experimental, quote-unquote, pr- uh, medical practices used by the Nazis on involuntarily held prisoners during the Second World War. This reminds me that this case ruled that experimental procedures cannot be done on involuntarily held patients as they cannot truly consent. Our last case today is Cruzan v. Director, Missouri DMH. Nancy Cruzan was in a severe motor vehicle accident in 1983. She lost respiratory and cardiac function until EMS arrived to revive her. Unfortunately, by that time, she had suffered a severe and permanent anoxic brain injury. She survived in a persistent vegetative state with no cognitive function requiring oxygen and artificial nutrition. Ms. Cruzan's parents requested the life support to be withdrawn as there was no real hope for recovery. The hospital stated that it could not do so without a court order. Nancy's parents brought the case to trial and a roommate of Nancy's testified that she had once told her that she did not want to live if she was ever to become seriously ill unless she could live, quote, at least halfway normal, unquote. The trial court agreed with Ms. Cruzan's parents. On appeal from the hospital, the Missouri Supreme Court reversed the decision, stating that the standard of clear and convincing evidence was not met in the prior legal legal proceedings. The case was then heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
In a close 5-4 to four ruling, the Supreme Court upheld the decision by the state Supreme Court. They stated that competent individuals have the right to refuse medical treatment under the Due Process Clause. However, they stated that with incompetent patients, the standard of clear and convincing evidence under Missouri state law was constitutional. They ruled the standard was acceptable because family members might not always make decisions that the incompetent person would have agreed with, and those decisions might lead to actions, like withdrawing life support, that would be irreversible. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. While competent individuals have the right to refuse treatment, the court recognized the difficulty for incompetent individuals to exercise such rights. To protect against potential errors, the court allowed states to require a higher standard of proof, clear and convincing, before allowing life support withdrawal for incompetent patients. This standard aimed to ensure the patient's true wishes were honored and prevent irreversible mistakes by family members. Now how to remember the ruling. Cruz means cross in Spanish. Crosses are often used as headstones. This reminds me that this case had to do with the right to die and how incompetent individuals may require a higher burden of proof to allow death. All right, uh, a couple, well, a few cases here to quickly review the mnemonics for. The first one was Canterbury v. Spence. And uh, I remember that um, you can't bury for Canterbury, specific for Spence, risks before operating on a patient. Again, you can't bury specific risks before operating on a patient. Uh, our next case was Kamowitz v. Michigan DMH. And uh, I remember that Kamowitz is a Jewish sur surname, and that reminds me of the Nuremberg Code, which is actually cited in this case, and the, quote, experimental, unquote, medical practices used by the Nazis on involuntarily held patients during the Second World, World War. This, uh, this reminds me that this case ruled out experimental practices uh, on involuntarily held patients as they cannot truly consent. And then our last case was Cruzan v. Director of Missouri DMH. And uh, I remember that cruz for Cruzan means cross in Spanish and that crosses are often used as headstones. This reminds me that this case has to do with the patient's right to die and how incompetent individuals may require a higher proof higher burden of proof to allow death. All right, that's a wrap on episode 15 on informed consent. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review and be sure to subscribe to be notified the next time an episode is released. Cheers.